Good morning. It's great to see all you here today. Those joining us online, welcome to the service. We are uh, on week three of our series from the book of Ruth. And I realized as I did this multiple series in Ruth beginning in August, that today would be a big return day for a lot of people. And so if you're new to us, uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Um, What I'm going to do is uh, begin with a bit of a review of where we've been the last couple of weeks so that everybody gets on the same page. And so if you haven't been around for a couple of weeks, it'll catch you up real uh, quickly here. So we're, we're doing a series from the book of Ruth. And uh, the book begins with uh, the identification of this family, Elimelech and his wife Naomi, and they're in Israel with their two sons, and they're experiencing a famine, so they decide, we want a better life. And they, they leave Israel, and they go to Moab to seek out a better life. Well, when they move there, one of the first things that happens is that Elimelech dies. So now Naomi's a widow, and her two sons marry Moabite women, local women, one being Ruth, and the book is named after her. Well, 10 years down the road, both of her sons die. Both of Naomi's sons die, which leaves her and the two daughter-in-laws in as widows. And Ruth is devastated, and rightly so, right? Or excuse me, Naomi's devastated, and rightly so. And she says to Ruth and her other daughter-in-law, just go back to your people, go back to your gods. I, I have nothing more to give you. Uh, one did. Orpah did, but Ruth said no, and and she said this to her mother-in-law, Naomi, where you go, I will go, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, and I'm going to die where you die. And so Ruth is super committed to Naomi, Naomi seeing this, decided just to let her come with her, and they found out then that there was, again, food in Israel, and things were going pretty good in Israel, so they decided to return from Moab back to Israel, and basically, in that time period, if you were widowed women with no husbands, you were ruined. You had no way to support yourself, life was just devastated, so these two women returned kind of devastated, and um, Ruth does what people did in that era. She goes out into the barley fields that are being harvested at the time and begins to glean behind the harvesters, just picking up the scraps of leftover so that these two ruined women could have some food. And she ends up in the field of a fellow named Boaz, another one of the big characters of the book of Ruth. And Boaz is a near relative to Elimelech, the dead husband of Naomi. And as chapter two of, of Ruth ends, um, we read how Boaz, his near relative uh, to Elimelech, is impressed with the character of Ruth. And he says to her, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have taken refuge. Also, as chapter 2 ends, Ruth then returns to Naomi with this huge amount of barley. You know, Boaz told this harvester to throw some extra on the ground for her. He's taking care of her. So she returns with an ephat of barley. Now, most of us will read that story and say, what's an ephat? Do you know what it is? Anybody have any idea how much grain that is? Why would you, right? It's about five to six gallons in volume of grain. It's about 50 pounds. It's a lot of grain, right? Now, I, I make bread whole wheat bread. It's just a little hobby I have. And um, so I grind it from the kernels and then I make the bread. It takes about six cups of, of whole wheat to make one loaf of bread. That's about one pound. 
okay? Just a little bit more than one pound of wheat to make a loaf of, of wheat bread. Now, I'm assuming barley is the same kind of mixture. And so when you come home with 50 pounds of barley, that's like 46 loaves of bread. It's a lot of bread, amen? And not only that, if you want to make barley soup, it's going to go really a long way. So I don't know if anybody does that. I know my wife makes barley soup every now and then. It's like magic. It just shows up in my bowl. So I don't, but it's good. And I'm assuming that you can make that kind of thing out of it. So Naomi's really impressed with this amount of barley. And she asked Ruth, who's blessed you like this? And Ruth says, Boaz. And then Naomi reveals to uh, Ruth, Boaz is a close relative And we find out that he's actually a kinsman redeemer. Now that label, kinsman redeemer, means something. Let me read to you what it means, its definition. This this is a, a good review point from last week. Here's what a kinsman redeemer could do. It's a relative who had the resources to purchase a deceased relative's land and marry then the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So Ruth ends up meeting Boaz in this field, and he has the ability, basically, to rescue Naomi and her. Are you getting the picture here? And we can see that these ruined women were now in this process of redemption. Now, we're using the book of Ruth for a couple of, of, of purposes. One is a, it's a great, concise teaching on identity, who we are in God and who God is. Our theme for 2022 here at Grace Point has been identity. We want to know who we are in Christ and let that begin to define us, not the world. The world will gladly define what we ought to think and how we ought to live. We, brothers and sisters, have to be defined by Christ and his ways and live accordingly. So Ruth is a great, concise uh, book in, in getting after that theme. Secondly, I'm using it to illustrate our mission statement here at Grace Point. Um, It's great reinforcement to what we're about and what we hope happens with people who attend Grace Point. And so what we see Ruth here have happened in her life is that she encountered the favor of God. She encountered the grace of God. She adopted Naomi's God as her God, and she began to come under the divine influence of the God of Israel, the true God, and she began to experience in that divine Favor, And she really, I think, was encountering grace. The first thing we want people to encounter here at Grace Point is the grace of God. And so I'm going to review for real, real quickly here kind of our, our mission statement. Um, but before I do that, let me just give you a definition of grace. Because if you don't know what grace means, you're not going to know what it means to encounter grace. And then our second part of the mission statement is we want to grow in grace. And the third part is we want to give grace away. So here's what grace means. It's the unmerited gift of divine favor in the salvation of sinners made possible by the substitutionary death of Jesus. So God can look on you and I who put our faith in him through Jesus Christ with favor because of what Christ has done for us. He's purchased us back. He's our kinsman redeemer, so to speak. It also means this, the divine influence, the divine empowerment operating in individuals for their regeneration, being born again, and sanctification, living life entirely different. So it's this divine influence in our life, and it's also divine favor. That's what grace means. So now Ruth ran right into the grace of God. She'd put herself 
under the wings of God, right? As, as Boaz has said to her. And she runs right into that, that, that enablement, that divine favor of God. And all of a sudden, life looks a little bit different. She starts living life for different reasons. She sees it differently. She's now encountering the grace of God. Our hope is that every single person that comes here, that you run into the divine grace that God has made possible through Jesus Christ. That you begin to live life a little bit differently because you now know Jesus Christ. Um, now what we're going to see today as we get to Ruth chapter 3 is that Ruth is going to grow in that grace. She's going to depend on God even more. She's going to begin to put God's ways into practice. And this is like the second level of our, our vision statement here, or our mission statement, I should say here, at, at Grace Point, is we want people to grow in grace, become more dependent on Christ than ever to begin to experience a transformative work uh, of the person of the Holy Spirit as he infills us and changes us from the inside out and we, and we begin to really live out the ways of God. That's what we're going to look at today, okay, in Ruth chapter 3. We're going to kind of zoom in on what it means to grow in grace. Now, there's a third part of our vision statement. I might as well just share that with you right now because we're going to look at this for the next couple of weeks. It, it's, it's to become uh, grace givers. It's to become tools that God uses to bring his grace into the lives of other people. When you live at this place, when you begin to understand that uh, God has gifted you with gifts of the Holy Spirit so that you can go out into your worlds, into your workplaces, into your school situations, into your families, and you can begin to um, basically bring God's grace to bear on that situation, you're living life like you're meant to be in the full-orbed power and presence of Jesus Christ as you become an instrument of grace. I'll leave this for the next couple of weeks, okay? So we're going to be here at this, this understanding of our, of our mission statement today, what it means to grow in grace. Now, before we get to Ruth chapter 3 then, I think it's really imperative that uh, we really talk about what does it mean to grow in grace. So now we're to the introduction of the message, all right? So before this was just preamble. Are you okay with that? So we're to, this will go relatively fast. We're to the introduction of the message. So let me just give you this, this statement. The person born again in Jesus is to grow in grace. When you're born again in Jesus, you haven't arrived. You have begun the journey. You're to grow in grace. You're to grow in dependency on him. You're to grow in that interaction with God and being transformed into the likeness of Christ more and more and more. So let me ask you this reflection question then. What do you think growing grace means? If someone came to you and said, what does it mean to grow in grace? Could you articulate what that means? Would you even know how to start? I hope so, because we've already given you this definition of grace. I think sometimes unintentionally what happens is that um, someone may understand, I, I, I'm not doing okay in my life. I remember this, because this happened to me as a 13-year-old boy. I, I, I was messed up, and I knew I wasn't right, and I remember that moment when I walked forward to that altar in that little chapel at that, that, that camp, Trout Lake Camp in Minnesota. Um, I was born again. I knew something wasn't right. And I knew I couldn't fix myself. And God moved on me mightily, and I received Christ as my Savior, and I was never to save. I encountered the grace of God. I stepped onto this level, and I was now looking at life differently. So I think we can see how that happens, that we can't do it ourselves. But then what, you know what happens frequently when, per, when someone is born again? They revert right back to the old ways. They begin to try to please God by works, by living rightly, by doing all the things that the Bible says in their own power. You know what that's called? It's called legalism. You can't do it in your own strength. 
You can't be okay by following some rules and some laws. You just utterly cannot do that yourself. And what we need to understand is that I'm saved by grace. I also what? Live by grace. I live with this utter dependency on God. Um, and I'm supposed to experience this, this increasing dependency on God. And that's, that's uh, growing in grace. Let me give you this insight. Listen to this insight. This is really important. Growing deep in God, growing deep in God is linked to growing more dependent on him. Okay? Deep dependent. Deep dependent. I I, I see so many people that do not get that basic understanding of what it means to mature in Christ. It's growing more dependent on him. It's 100% opposite of what we're taught in our culture, where we think growing up and and maturing is all about independence. Growing up and maturing in Christian language is all about dependence on Christ more and more and this divine enablement in your life. So growing in grace could be defined this way. You have a growing dependence on God with an expanding expectation I, I like that phrase. I'm inspired by Aaron, the master at alliteration. But this is really good. You have a growing dependence on God with an expanding expectation. Your expectation is constantly getting bigger that God will do the divine in your life. That's growing in grace in a nutshell. I'm living with this expanding expectation of what God will do. Amen? This is really, really important to get. Now, the Lord sums this all up for us in Titus chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 11 through 14 for you. This is, this is so good. Listen to this. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Right? The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to what? Say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's growing in grace language. Growing in grace language goes like this. I'm crazy in love with Jesus Christ. I'm being radically altered on on how I live and how I think. I want to live a set-apart life that brings glory to God. I I am just eager to do good. I'm devoted. I want to do good. A lot of you are sports people. Anybody into sports here at all? Some of you are going to raise your hands. You know, I I grew up loving to play basketball. I love basketball. I mean, it was like the only sport for me for a while. No one ever had to tell me, go play. I want to, anybody want to play, want to play, want to play. You know what I mean? Um, and I learned this about Nathan, Nathan Clanton on, on our retreat. He loves to play stuff and participate. He, he was bugging Brennan to death to, to play cornhole, you know. And Brennan took his, took his ground and said no. But, um, but I thought, he loves to play. He loves to compete. He loves to do games. He just wants to have fun, you know. And I didn't know that about him until we did this little retreat. But anyway, that's kind of cool. I, I love to play. I was devoted to basketball. I love to just play it. Just couldn't play it enough. That's supposed to be our characterization in Christ. We're just eager to do good. 
We just love them, man. We want to hang around with them. We want to do things that, that uh, you know, are, are a blessing to others and, and that, that, that uh, please our Lord. And so Philippians 2, uh, verses 12 through 13 are becoming a reality. Listen to this. Therefore my, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. Who works in you? God works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, unfortunately, growing in grace, sometimes in, 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 in church circles, we call this discipleship, which is not a bad word. It's a good word. Nothing wrong with the word discipleship. But unfortunately, sometimes this growing in grace or discipleship is reduced to just kind of an academic endeavor where we think Bible knowledge is the same as maturity it is not. Now, I love reading my Bible. I love learning and reviewing and being reminded of the things of God. And one of my big concerns for the church today is that we're fairly biblically illiterate. And now we live in a culture with a lot of rage going on and a lot of uh, intolerance. And when God's people are experiencing this kind of rage and then they're not real biblically literate, we, we aren't really equipped very well uh, to, to, to give a good witness, uh, an answer for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think we should learn the Bible. I think we should know the Bible inside and out, right? Because it should set our word view. If we love Jesus Christ and we're being transformed by the inner work of the Holy Spirit, the ways that happens frequently is by knowing God's word and struggling with what it says and letting it define our worldview for us. Not letting somebody else define our worldview just because they happen to have a really loud voice or a platform. We've got to let Christ have that, that place in, in, in our lives. But here is what we've got to understand about growing in grace. There's a bigger goal than Bible information. It's conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. That's ultimately the goal of growing in grace, that you look a lot like the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible becomes a vital tool for that endeavor. But it's not the end. It's the tool. It's the means. It's part of the way that you get to the, the goal, and that's to look like Jesus Christ. So we can actually say and agree with Romans 12 that we're not conforming to this world system and this world's way. Instead, we're being transformed, and our minds are being renewed by the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Now we're ready for Ruth 3. Okay? We got growing in grace down a bit. We understand what that means in the vision statement here, or at uh, mission statement. I keep if I say vision and mission and mix them up, just, just to blow me off, okay? It's our mission statement, okay? Got what I'm saying there? And so um, now we're ready for Ruth chapter 3. I'm going to read it in its entirety to you. Just let this just soak in and just hear what it says here. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Doesn't that sound like a mother-in-law? We've got to find you a man. That's what she's saying here. Now Boaz, with whose woman you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I'll do whatever you say. Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, 
and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth. She said, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Another word for kinsman redeemer. We defined that earlier in the, in the, in the, in the message. The Lord bless you, my daughter. He replied, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, which, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you all that you ask. All the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer. Good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives... I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out, which he did. He poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then she went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So here's our big thought from, from Ruth chapter 3. I think it really goes along well with this growing in grace. It's really an important concept to understand that's part of our mission here at Grace Point is that we want people to grow in grace. It's this. Ruth demonstrated our reliance, our reliance on God's ways. She not only knew them, she not only listened to her, her mother-in-law, Naomi, she did it. She relied on it. Uncovering boss's feet, you've got to admit that seems a little bit bizarre, Right? A little bit strange. So I want to read one Bible commentator's take on this whole thing and what it was all about, okay? So I'm just going to read this to you, maybe share a little bit of my own insight, but listen to this. Barley threshing was in progress. And each evening following their work, Boaz and his men celebrated that day's work with food and drink. Then some of the men would go sleep on the threshing floor to prevent theft. That's why they slept there, to prevent the barley from being stolen. At this point in Israel's history, they didn't allow women to do the threshing of the the barley because it was dangerous, it had to be protected, and it was very dirty work. So after Boaz is asleep, Ruth follows Naomi's instructions. She uncovered Boaz's feet and she laid down. What this custom was showing Boaz is this, that by law he was invited to become Naomi and Ruth's kinsman redeemer. He could find someone else to marry Ruth or marry Ruth himself. But Ruth's careful compliance with Naomi's instructions demonstrated her complete faith in Naomi and in the ways of, of her God. Okay? So Ruth does something that I think a lot of people are, are doing. She, she's hearing God's ways and what is she doing? She's living them out. She's actually doing them. Friends, this is growing in grace. When we trust God's ways enough to say, I'm actually going to do them, God, and, and rely on you, counting on you to do divine things in my life as I live my life according to the truth that you're revealing to me. When Ruth requested that Boaz cover her with the corner of his cloak, Boaz gave his promise, I'm going to provide for your future. 
And this Boaz functions, this commentator says, as a sign pointing to his and Ruth's great descendant, Jesus, that Jesus would come and cover us with his blood, cleansing us from our sins and giving us a hope and a future in him as we rely upon him. So Ruth is embracing the ways of the Lord. She's growing in grace. She's understanding these ways more and more. She's depending on God. God's ways are being lived out by her, and she's counting on his divine influence and guidance. By the way, the instructions that um, Naomi gives to Ruth are right out of the Bible. They're right out of Deuteronomy chapter 25. Listen to this. Verses 5 through 6 says this. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son... His widow must not marry outside the family. Her, brother, her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So hear this. The strength of Naomi's advice to Ruth lie in the fact that it was biblical. She was telling her daughter-in-law, live this way because it's God's way. Ruth did that. And she came under the favor of Boaz and ultimately under the favor of God. So each week in the Ruth series, I'm trying to highlight a word. The word today is reliance. And reliance means I have a dependence on or trust in the Lord in his ways. I just begin to let these things define my life and I live accordingly. I live in dependence on and trust in the Lord in his ways. And Ruth lived out the ways that were being revealed to her of God. Um, And that's growing in grace. She not only learned these things, she lived these things. So let's talk application here for just a moment. What are some ways that you're to rely on God? I want you to engage with me just for a moment. What are some ways that you and I are to rely on God in the times we find ourselves living in? Now think about this. If 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 you don't have this healthy, growing in grace, reliance upon God, we will probably be relying upon sources that are unreliable. I see this in the church, and of course I see it outside the church all the time. People are, 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 are relying on inherently unreliable sources. You know what the first one is that we should not rely on? People. We have to have a real healthy reliance upon the Lord Jesus Christ, but we've got to understand we can't really rely on other people. And even in a marriage, and, and, and September 10th, Vicki and I have been married 45 years. That's my wife. Vicki and I can't rely on each other in the sense of being fulfilled that, that only Christ can do. Of course we rely on each other. We do all kinds of things to help each other, right? But there has to be this healthy reliance by each one of us uh, on Jesus Christ, she doesn't live to make me happy. I don't live to make her happy. I can't do that for her. She can't do that for me. Only Christ can do some things for us. We have to rely on Christ first and then bring that health of relationship into our marriage. You getting the priority here? How this works? And so often I see people relying way too much on other people for their well-being. That's called codependency. It doesn't usually work out very well. How about this one? Relying on money. If I just had a million bucks, life would be good. Now it's probably more like three million. Inflation, I'm sorry, that was a bad joke. Um, You get what I'm saying. I, in my life, have had nothing and at times have had 
plenty. And, you know, I, I remember back in my college days, and a lot of you are college students, right? Are you college, a bunch of college students here? My memory of college for me, the University of Minnesota when I went there, was we had no money. And, and we just were scraping by. And I, I got married to Vicky relatively young. Um, you know, like we were 13 and 14. That's why it's our 45th anniversary right now. At any rate, um, <laughs> we got married relatively young. Some of the happiest days we had were college days. We had nothing. Nothing to our name hardly at all. You know why? Because you just don't have anything to worry about. Getting a meal here or there or whatever and doing schoolwork. And it was simple and it was straightforward. And money isn't the solution. It's not a good source to rely on. How about education? I'm hitting some biggies here in the town of Brookings. I have a couple degrees. A lot of uh, people I know have multiple degrees, and, and uh, some of my kids do too. Do you, do you think that's a reliable source? It's helpful. There's nothing wrong with getting a degree and having a nice career and all that kind of stuff. It's a great pursuit to have. But I tell you what, it, it's not something you to rely on to make you satisfied or happy. It's just a means to have some, some things happening in, in your life. How about, okay, now I'm almost afraid to say this. How about relying on government? Oh boy, right? that's, a, that's like a flash thing to say right now. Um, but, but get this, I have seen so much misplaced reliance upon government. I, we just, we got to watch out the sources that we rely on. How about a company or a business? Businesses, you know, split up. Businesses sometimes sell off parts of businesses and things like that. And it's always, there's an ebb and flow to these kinds of things. Here's what we're to rely on. Um, here's what we're to rely on. First, we're to rely on the promises of Jesus Christ. He's promised things like this. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's what I'm relying on. Second thing I rely on are frequently, especially in times that are trying and a little troubling, is the perspective that Christ gives us. He said, in this world, we will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome this world. So I'm relying on that perspective to set the tone of my heart, not what I'm going through, okay? Thirdly, what I rely on is the priorities of Christ that he's identified for us. He said, you know, put your treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. So he's telling me, have that priority, be kingdom-minded. So I'm tending to rely on the promises, the perspective, and the priorities of Christ. And let that set my kind of agenda and mindset. Um, recently, I went on sabbatical for about four weeks. And I said I would get back to this and talk about little, some of the things I, I learned. Here, here's one of the things I, I begin to realize. Man, is this world busy. Because I got away from it for a month. You don't think you are, but you're just overwhelmed with all kinds of stuff, whether it be listening to the news or just interaction or anxiety or whatever. It's busy and it's so loud that it can overwhelm you and overshadow your soul. So I get away for four weeks. It took about two weeks for that to kind of go away. Of course, I had 26 of my grandkids and kids there, which was busy. So once they left, it got really quiet. But then I realized in that quietness how my mind is so anxious and preoccupied with all this stuff all the time. It just, it's like, it's like this huge amount of static and it's all of a sudden it's gone. And I begin to realize, you know what? Jesus, I have to understand 
that I have to place my reliance on what I just shared with you, your promises, your peace you give me, not as the world gives me, your peace gives me. You give me a quietness of soul. You give me that assurance of the heart, you know? And sure, in this world, we're going to have trouble. Why do, why do we so readily want to trust things that are just so frail and broken all the time? Why are we doing that? Well, we should be trusting Christ, you know? And so it took me a long time to settle down and begin to say, this is how... Basically, I am going to live. I've been going there, but I'm going there like crazy um, right now. Let me spend a few minutes here with the second half of the story. We're going to close out really quickly here. I want to leave some time at the end of the service for something special here. But I want to talk with you for just a couple moments in closing about the Christ-like characteristics of Boaz. I don't think I would do this, this chapter justice if I didn't do that. Boaz exhibits for us here several Christ-like characteristics that are supposed to help you and I to have a rightness to our reliance on Jesus Christ, to feel justified in why we would trust in Jesus Christ. He's indicative of of who who Christ is and and what Christ has done for us. Well, the first one is kinsman redeemer. I'm just using one or two word titles here so it's easy to remember. And so Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. I talked about this last week a little bit here. Um, He's going to buy basically... Uh, Emelech's land, we'll see that next week. And he's going to marry Ruth, and he's going he's to take these women from ruin to redemption and restoration and all that kind of thing. As, you know, it's, it's just such a cool story. Um, but get this, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, I didn't read this part because it's kind of a little bit negative as the story goes on about what a kinsman redeemer would do. If you, if you wouldn't do your kinsman redeemer duty, then the person that was up, Rejected was supposed to remove, like if Dan was supposed to be a kinsman redeemer for Tina, and he wouldn't do that, she was supposed to take a sandal off him. I don't, this sandal thing, and you see this a lot in, in the Jewish ancient literature, supposed to take a sandal off, and that was humiliating, because, and then he would be known as the person who was unsandaled. And that was an, a shaming thing, you know. And so um, uh, it was an act of disgrace. Now, now in the case, in the case of, uh, of Ruth, she didn't do that. Now, probably two reasons. One, she was falling in love with Boaz. She wanted Boaz. She didn't want the other relative. I'm pretty convinced of that. Secondly, I think being a foreigner, not an Israelite by birth, I think she might have felt very uncomfortable going up to somebody and taking their sandal off. Just some, some thoughts on that. But I tell you, Boaz, he wasn't going to be disgraced. Amen. He was determined that somebody would be these gals, Kim and Redeemer. Boy, does that remind me of Jesus Christ. He is determined to be our Redeemer. See, Christianity is very unique this way. Now hear me, because in our, in, our, in our culture of toleration, we like to think it's intellectual to say all the religions are the same. Oh my goodness, they are not at all the same. In most major cults and religions that are not Christian, you have to perform to be accepted. You have to, you have to do some things to be okay. In our faith, Christianity, our God said, you can never be okay on your own. And he came to us in person. He came as a near relative, a kinsman redeemer, to buy us back from our sin and death. Amen? We are very different that way from most other faiths. They are not the same. I want you to know the uniqueness of Christianity. And Jesus was determined, like Boaz was determined to, to redeem um, Naomi and Ruth. Jesus is determined to redeem us. 
At one point in his ministry, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus explained, I got to go to Jerusalem and I gotta, I'm going to be killed there. They're going to bury me and third, three days I'm going to rise from the dead. Peter takes him aside to begin to rebuke him. And I love what Jesus says to him. He says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of man in mind. And what Jesus is saying is, I got to do this. I'm determined to do this. I am your kinsman redeemer. I am going to go to the cross and I'm going to save people from their sins. And he's determined to do that. So there's a rightness to our reliance in Christ because he's determined, right? To be our savior, to be our redeemer. Second Christ-like characteristic I see in Boaz is he's just faithful. Man, the guy's faithful. He's faithful to God. He's faithful to Naomi. He's faithful to Ruth. He's faithful to his word. He's just characterized by faithfulness. And that's Jesus Christ. He's faithful. He's characterized by faithfulness. Listen to Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was the faithful. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful to all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and hope in which we glory. So what we have to understand is Jesus is faithful. Boaz shows that faithfulness in his relationship with Ruth and Naomi. And, and Christ, if we want to characterize him, is faithful. And that's, it's right to have reliance on this one who's so faithful. Next one is provider. Man, Christ's likeness in Boaz is that he's a provider. Boaz put six measures of barley on Ruth before he left for town. I mean, he can't give this girl enough barley. Have you noticed that? Every time she returns back to Naomi, she's got a load of barley with her. And um, there are several ideas why Boaz uh, did this uh, for Ruth. But the most simple one is this. He cared about her and he cared about Naomi. And I think that's probably the reason he did it. I just want to make sure you gals have enough. It's going to load you up with lots of barley. And this is illustrative of what Christ has done for you and I. He's our provider. In fact, uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, these words. Listen to this. And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So God, our Father, will meet all our needs in Jesus Christ. Now, the last word I want to share with you, and I'm going to do this very quickly. Is it that late already? I need to quit here. Almost. Almost is Christ is our pursuer, and we see Boaz as a pursuer. I, I love this. Naomi articulated this character quality in him. She said, the man will not rest until this matter is settled. Don't you love that kind of urgency he had and following the things of God? Well, Jesus is our provider too, or our, our pursuer, excuse me. Let me, let me share this uh, from, from Matthew 18. Let me share this. Listen to verse 12 through 14. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that had wandered off? And if you find it, too, they tell you he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should uh, perish. Now get this story. Jesus is telling this story. He's talking to Matthew 18 with a child standing in front of him. You've got to read it closely. And in that culture, children were viewed as lowly. They are not viewed in our culture as People are pretty child-centered in our culture now. Not in that culture. Children were viewed as the lowly ones of culture. So Jesus has this lowly one in culture 
standing in front of him, he said, I'm gonna, I will leave the 99 to pursue this one. And basically what he's saying is, I will go after you. I'm your pursuer. And, and, and so Boaz definitely demonstrates that. As Naomi says to Ruth, that man will not rest until he settles the matter. And I feel like Jesus is saying that to us. I will not rest until the matter is settled in you. I will pursue you. And I will pursue you. Does that give you a different understanding of God? It does. That's why I think Ruth is so, so insightful in us understanding who God is and who we are in God. So I'm going to end there today and turn this back over to the praise team just with a really super quick prayer. Would you bow your heads? Look, I want to thank you for the story of Ruth and for all the insight it gives us about our identity and also about our mission statement here at Grace Point. And just in general, Lord, it gives us so much insight about who you are and how much you love us. Would you just bless the remainder of this service, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.